All right, we're not talking about uh, about uh, the election, so let's come back in and talk a little bit about that and some of the Wall Street goings-on. And I can't remember whether I mentioned on last week's program, the DVD that's out there, how Ohio pulled it off, but uh, we're pleased to note that uh, five people who appeared in the documentary have been on this radio program. The documentary details how Kenneth Blackwell, the chairman of the Bush for President campaign and also the Secretary of State, of Ohio managed to swing that uh, state out of the blue column and into the red. Had Ohio gone blue, and the statistics indicate that it should have, John Kerry would have had 272 electoral votes and would be president now. The startling stat uh, from that DVD, which which I, I, I thought I followed this pretty closely, but I was stunned to find out that the exit poll versus poll data discrepancy in Ohio in 04 was 11.7%. When in the very same month, there was a 12% swing in the Ukrainian elections, the world looked at it and said, tainted results. But when it happened in Ohio, everybody just said, gee, those, that exiting polling data just doesn't seem to work very well in America. And of course, if you've ever passed statistics, you know that the nationwide voting total, based on a sampling of 68 to 100,000, I've heard both figures, uh, a nationwide swing of 5.5% is something that is statistical million-to-one oddity. But Steve Freeman, the statistician who appears in How Ohio Pulled It Off, has been noting of late that... um, the news outlets are already dismissing exit polls for election 08. One pollster is claiming that the Obama people are overly exuberant about participating in polls, and it's uh, skewing their results. Speaking of Ohio, we want to thank Barb for the email she sent us from the Raw Story article by Larissa Alexandrovna and Muriel Kane about the fact that a Republican IT consultant has been subpoenaed in a case alleging tampering with the 2004 results in Ohio. Michael Connell has been served with a subpoena in Ohio in a case alleging that vote tampering during the presidential election resulted in civil rights violations. Connell is the president of GovTech Solutions and New Media Communications. He's a website designer and IT professional who created a website for Ohio's Secretary of State. They presented the results of the 2004 election in real time as they were tabulated. Oddly enough, Connell is a longtime GOP operative whose company provided web services for Bush Cheney, for the Bush Cheney 04 campaign, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Republican National Committee, and many Republican candidates. This in itself might have raised some questions about his involvement in creating Ohio's official state election website. By the way, I'd forgotten the fact that George W. Bush was in Ohio on Election Day four years ago. Anyway, Steve Freeman has also noted out on the web that uh, there was an interview with the former Diebold contractor, Chris Hood, about the election down in Georgia. And uh, the interview was prepared for a major news program that was supposed to air two weeks before the election of 2006. Oddly enough, the special was killed just before the election. Apparently, the interview with Chris Hood is available on YouTube. We've been using Parade Magazine as a gauge of uh, sort of middle America in, in the past few months. And I was tickled by the article by John Meekham in Parade of a couple weeks back, titled, Five Ideas for Our Next President. 
They seem to have had our lame duck president in mind when providing advice for how to do things maybe differently in the future. One of the five was, keep church and state separate. Good idea. Another one, always have a backup plan or two. Third one was pretty good too. Find people who tell it like it is. We promised a couple weeks back we were going to talk about that MSNBC.com article about what these uh, Wall Street guys have been making. We mentioned Stanley O'Neill of Merrill Lynch, who uh, pocketed $160 million in stock options and retirement perks as he basically drove Merrill Lynch into the toilet. But he was not, we should note, an isolated example. How about Angelo Mozillo of Countrywide Financial, built into the nation's largest mortgage company, and was paid rather handsomely during the real estate boom. Mozilla fought against his own company's board, which attempted to cut back his pay by hiring a special consultant. And the effort seemed to have paid off. In 07, he took home $121.5 million by exercising stock options and received compensation of over $22 million. This huge pay came in a year when the bottom dropped out of the housing market and Countrywide took a beating with a loss of $704 million, coupled with a nearly 80% skid in the company's stock price. How about the CEO of Lehman Brothers, which of course filed for bankruptcy in September? CEO Richard Fold apparently got paid roughly $17,000 an hour to obliterate his firm. How about Bear Stearns, which went south last spring? Its CEO, James Kane, made more than $160 million before his company hit the skids. She do have to feel for the poor guy in terms of his stock options. At one point, he was a billionaire, but after the Wall Street firm crumbled, he had to sell his stake for a mere $61 million. Anyway, we keep hearing about how, you know, Wall Street and corporate America has to pay top dollar for top talent. Well, one thing's clear. They're paying top dollar. And we ought to mention an article by Eric Lipton in the New York Times from October 10th. Article about how things work in the military industry. Talks about Michael Cantrell, an engineer at the Army Space and Missile Defense Command headquarters in Huntsville, Alabama. This engineer looked around, saw how much money the contractors were making, looked around, saw how much money the lobbyists were making, and decided he needed a cut. Well, before long, Cantrell and his deputy, Doug Ennis, uh, were getting personal checks from contractors and eventually collected more than $1.6 million in kickbacks. Mr. Lipton reminds us in the article that the National Missile Defense Program has cost the United States more than $110 billion since Ronald Reagan unveiled his Star Wars plan 25 years ago. Today, the missile defense effort is the Pentagon's single biggest procurement program. In the middle of all this, we have uh, Mike Cantrell, little-known, mid-level Defense Department insider who spent his entire career in Alabama gaming the system. At one point, Ted Stevens, the Alaska Republican senator, chewed out Pentagon officials who opposed a missile range Cantrell and his allies were trying to build in Alaska. And a staffer to former Senator Trent Lott intervened when the Pentagon threatened discipline Mr. Cantrell for lobbying, which is a banned activity for civil servants. Cantrell was in fact a regular on Capitol Hill, both in the halls of Congress and in the bars and restaurants where Hill staffers gather after hours. He's pretty good at it. At one point, he got the Congress to significantly increase the annual financing for an experimental missile defense work, 
which involved not just five test launchings, but the construction of a new launching site on a remote Alaska island. This project included the leasing of a mothballed Navy helicopter carrier, which would be used to send a simulated missile attack. Apparently the Navy got kind of incensed about uh, the idea of taking the, the Tripoli, the helicopter carrier, and spending several million dollars renovating it. When they tried to blow the whistle, the political authorities slapped them down. Cantrell's pretty honest about all this. He says, well, he knew that building this new launch facility was wasteful. It just didn't make sense, he said. The economics of it, they just don't work. But he didn't care about that. He went up to deal on Capitol Hill and said, I went up there to get the money, and we got what we needed. Let me quote from the article. Mr. Cantrell and his deputy, Mr. Ennis, visited Kodiak Island on the afternoon of the inaugural test launching in November 1998. The Air Force has substituted other equipment for Mr. Cantrell's payload. The two men, armed with a cooler filled with Miller Lite, watched the launching from a trailer, emerging just in time to see the missile burn an orange streak into the sky. They had hidden out to avoid any local news reporters who might discover that Mr. Cantrell's missile parts, the justification for millions of dollars in spending, were not even being tested. There's no way we can explain this, Mr. Cantrell remembers telling Mr. Ennis. Anyway, that's enough of that. One does hope that in an upcoming administration, we will see less of this sort of thing. Speaking of politics and corruption, we want to thank Gary for resending us uh, this, this commentary by Elliot Spitzer. Remember him? New York governor, taken out in a sex scandal. Wrote a pretty good article uh, on February 14th in the Washington Post that might bear some quoting from. Noted Spitzer in February, Several years ago, state attorneys general and others involved in consumer protection began to notice a marked increase in the range of predatory lending practices by mortgage lenders. Someone misrepresenting the terms of loans, making loans without regard to customers' ability to repay, making loans with deceptive teaser rates that later ballooned astronomically, packing loans with undisclosed charges and fees, or even paying illegal kickbacks. These and other practices we noted were having a devastating effect on home buyers. In addition, the widespread nature of these practices, if left unchecked, threatened our financial markets. Even though predatory lending was becoming a national problem, the Bush, administ the Bush administration looked the other way and did nothing to protect American homeowners. In fact, the government chose instead to align itself with the banks that were victimizing consumers. Predatory lending was widely understood to present a looming national crisis. This threat was so clear that as New York Attorney General, I joined with colleagues in the other 49 states in attempting to fill the void left by the federal government. What did the administration do in response? Did it reverse course and decide to take action to halt this burgeoning scourge? No. Not only did the Bush administration do nothing to protect consumers, it embarked on an aggressive and unprecedented campaign to prevent states from protecting the residents from the very problems to which the federal government was turning a blind eye. The administration accomplished this feat through an obscure federal agency called the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, OCC. The OCC has been in existence since the Civil War. Its mission is to ensure the fiscal soundness of national banks. For 140 years, the OCC examined the books of national banks to make sure they were balanced, an important but uncontroversial function. But a few years ago, for the first time in its history, the OCC was used as a tool against consumers. In 2003, during the height of the predatory lending crisis, the OCC invoked a clause from the 1863 National Bank Act to issue formal opinions preempting all state predatory lending laws 
thereby rendering them inoperative. The OCC also promulgated new rules that prevented states from enforcing any of their own consumer protection laws against national banks. The federal government's actions were so egregious and so unprecedented that all 50 state attorneys general and all 50 state banking superintendents actively fought the new rules. But the unanimous, but the unanimous opinion of the 50 states did not deter or even slow the Bush administration in its goal of protecting the banks. In fact, when my office opened an investigation of possible discrimination in mortgage lending by a number of banks, the OCC filed a federal lawsuit to stop the investigation. Anyway, that's enough of that. It's just a coincidence that Elliot Spitzer got involved in a sex scandal shortly afterwards and resigned the office of governor? You know, in the local scene, uh, this fallout from our real estate market kind of hitting the skids, I think, is, uh, is affecting like the Sacramento Bee. I don't know what percentage of the revenues of the paper came from uh, real estate advertising, but since there used to be a huge section, and still is a huge section of the Sunday paper devoted to this, uh, one suspects that it's really added to their woes considerably. But do we value the McClatchy newspapers? We value the Sacramento Bee and are pleased to see that they, they seem to be hanging in there. We've not been too big a fan of Dan Walters since his egregious column not so long ago about how uh, everything was just fine in California with our voting machines. Thank you very much. But uh, perhaps with his job on the line, Dan seems to have woken up, smelled the coffee, and is writing some pretty good stuff these days. Anyway, we think it would be a great tragedy if newspapers would continue to decline. We need them. Although we hope that uh, as they solve their financial woes, they won't be dependent upon real estate developers, which in this correspondent's opinion have largely done for California what General Sherman did for Atlanta. And by the way, we should remind you that the opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, UC Davis, or the regents of the university. I think we should talk some science. I just want to mention that when Freeman Dyson spoke uh, at, at UC Davis uh, Tuesday night, he addressed the issue of the importance of the individual versus that of groups. And cited as one of the examples of, uh, of what got him thinking along these lines was an article written by a linguist examining how ideas may not translate from one culture to another, the example being that of the American concept of freedom. We mentioned that Reagan, quote at the top of the show, I, I'm no linguist, but I understand in the Russian language there is no word for freedom. Well, it turned out Reagan actually maybe was more right than he knew. Freeman Dyson pointed out that there are three Russian words that sort of correspond to the American concept of freedom, but each has its subtle differences. The words most approximating freedom are svoboda, mir, and volya. And, and, and actually, I, I probably shouldn't get into this because I'm no linguist. But it was interesting to note that, that, that the term svoboda in, Russian, in the Russian context has overtones of a willingness to accept constraints in order to get privileges, which is not really the American concept of freedom. And the term volya sort of approximates freedom, but it has this overtone of, a, of political power to act as one saw fit for the good of society. And the term mere sort of approximates freedom, but it has these overtones of a lack of fear of instability and disorder. The point of all of it was that, as Dyson pointed out, 
was that an American talking about freedom maybe somewhat misunderstood by his Russian counterpart. Our American concept of freedom is really much more based on, on freedom of the individual rather than the, the context of a group. It's an idea that's sort of rooted in Renaissance thinking, and of course uh, students of history know that the Renaissance kind of bypassed Russia. Anyway, Freeman Dyson is, is a very interesting individual, and we look very much forward to, to interviewing him uh, in the near future. Something I'm actually very disappointed about is the fact that uh, nobody took up my challenge a few weeks back on the matter of earwax. I was really hoping some otolaryngologist would come forward to tell me I was full of it so I could frankly beat him or her to a pulp. But uh, unfortunately, no one did. I guess this means that everyone out there realizes that on this issue, I'm correct. So let me put another chip on my other shoulder and take on the American Academy of Pediatrics. Yes, the same people who 20-some-odd years ago decided that we just couldn't possibly give our children aspirin anymore. Well, they're at it again. And by the way, it might be worth mentioning at this juncture that there's a new study out that, uh, an alarming study, that shows that babies who are given acetaminophen, Tylenol, for their fever are more likely to develop asthma as they get older. A uh, five-year study of 200,000 babies and children has shown that if an infant is giving acetaminophen, he or she is 46% more likely to have developed asthma by age six or seven. So the American Academy of Pediatrics to prevent the one in 50,000 incidents of RISE syndrome may have given your kid asthma, to oversimplify somewhat. But anyway, now they don't want you to give cold medicines to children under four. They wanted to make it under six, but they compromised and settled for under four. Article earlier this month quoted a Dr. Laura Herrera, who said, The best thing a parent can do is comfort their children. Keeping them as comfortable as possible is certainly better than giving them cough and cold medicines. The claim is being made that there's no evidence these products work in kids. And they keep saying, well, they haven't, they haven't done a formal test of them in kids. And you know what? I'd like to hear from you, dear listener, on this particular topic. If you're a mother or father with children, in your experience, has giving them cough and cold medications relieved their suffering? There's pediatricians out there that want to tell you that, well, if, no, they just don't. They couldn't have. And in yet another report by the American Academy of Pediatrics, it's been noted that buying your young child a hamster a turtle, a lizard, or some other exotic animal could make him very sick. They're now saying that children under five shouldn't have contact with non-traditional or exotic pets, like hamsters, hedgehogs, turtles, baby chicks, or any kind of lizard, all of which might transmit salmonella and other germs. Dr. Larry Pickering of the Center for Disease Control told the AP, a lot of children get very ill and spend weeks in the hospital after kissing their pet iguana or playing with chicks and then sucking their fingers. Researchers are urging parents to wait until kids are at least six before getting a non-traditional pet or to simply choose a cat or dog, which present less danger of infection. These people need a life. Let us take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 